0: yes let's dig back into the gender binary of the twilight saga a universe that both creates and is created by the culture around it in this universe what's scarier a vampire or a human man how does bella swan fare against someone who's both how does beau's life differ find out now on this week's episode of stephanie meyer ruined my life This is a friendly reminder that the Twilight Saga goes hand-in-hand with conversations about domestic violence and unhealthy relationships. If you've already read or watched any part of the series, you've seen everything I'm talking about in this episode, but there are some sensitive topics coming up today, and I thought I'd bring it up just in case. Fortunately, we're not talking about that last movie, which has some of... (laughs) That last movie's graphic, I'm telling you, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the sensitive scenes in that first book, And the first book is most important because we have these two side books, Midnight Sun and Life and Death. The main character, Bella Swan, is an average high schooler. She's working to establish her identity at a new school in a new town. She reads Jane Austen, goes for walks, and tries to make sense of the world around her. Even though Bella seems timid about a lack of relationship experience, she's 17 and developmentally right on track for learning about sex and intimacy. Teenagers may be headstrong, but even they know that their personalities aren't set in stone. Teenagers are working through who they are or what they might become, and that's normal. It gets a little bit weird when Bella meets Edward, because after she meets him, a lot of her energy goes toward understanding him and processing what it means to be dead, soulless, a soulmate, a vampire, a human, and a bunch of other really intense concepts that philosophically might come up in a typical teenager's life, but aren't typically the focal point of existing as a teenager. Of the literally hundreds of gendered word changes I marked in Stephanie Meyer's Life or Death book about Beau Swan, one thing that stuck out was that Beau is not as obsessed with Edith as Bella is with Edward. In general, in books and movies, women characters are prone to talking about their relationships with men over pretty much any other topic. Alison Bechtel has a classic trick for rating the representation of women in a piece of work. There is a similar simple test called the DuVernay test after Ava DuVernay that requires African-American characters to have fully realized lives that aren't just characters that support white characters. Like, yeah, there's a black girl in Jimmy Neutron, but she's Cindy's friend and has almost none of her own plot lines. It's like that. The Bechtel test requires that two women characters, characters that are important enough to have names, talk about something other than a man. That's it. And when I learned about this test, I was mortified that even some of my favorite movies can't pass it. A lot of movies don't even have two women important enough to have names, to be quite honest. Twilight does have a female protagonist, so it's easier to pass the Bechdel test, but if you read it side-by-side with Beau Swan's experience, it actually is not a great, great look. It's not a great look. An absolutely perfect example presents itself during preparations for a school dance. Bella in Twilight and Beau in Life and Death, being characters on the same plot line in parallel universes, both skip the dance but agree to take a trip to Port Angeles with some friends to do some preparation. In Twilight, Bella goes dress shopping and then to dinner with Jessica and Angela, and while shopping, they talk about boys. Bella says she's never had a boyfriend. Jessica says she enjoyed a dinner with Mike recently, and it turns out Angela wasn't thrilled to be going to the dance with Eric. Also, apparently, Tyler has been telling everyone he's going to prom with Bella. If the names Mike, Eric, Tyler, honestly even Jessica and Angela don't ring any bells, they shouldn't. They shouldn't. They're not important. Regardless of how completely irrelevant the human characters are to Bella's life, a hot second is spent discussing these boys. Like, we barely hear about any of these humans, and yet we talk about these relationships with boys. However, when Beau goes to Port Angeles with Jeremy and Alan, they're looking to order corsages and go to the movies. Ordering corsages seems like an all right substitute. I don't love that they go to the movies instead of dinner because it sort of implies that the boys are doing experience-based activity while the girls are just in a restaurant where they can chatter about life and probably boys. (laughs) But the more striking change to the scene is that the boys spend no time at all talking about the girls, Bo doesn't mention that he's never had a girlfriend. No one talks about whether or not they like their dates. The closest they come to mentioning them is that the woman at the at the flower shop claims that all of the girls they're going with are going to care a lot about the corsages, and Bo's internal dialogue suspects that maybe they won't. And so in the scene from Twilight, the men are the center of attention and the girls are high maintenance, and in the scene from Life and Death, the men are the center of attention and the girls are high maintenance this is the same scene there are other scenes where everything happens just the same in both books like when charlie gives his kid a truck or the first day of classes other parts of the port angeles trip are even the same like coming across the bookstore and deciding not to go in but for some reason stephanie meyer felt like she had to make changes to this conversation and in doing so she makes an assertion about what behavior is right or wrong or even just possible for a teenage boy and don't forget This is a vampire book. The reader is likely to suspend some disbelief if Bo had wanted to tell his friends that he'd never had a girlfriend or never been kissed or whatever, or if Bo's friends had wanted to say, I don't know, actually, I'm not, you know, like, I just, I would be willing to suspend some disbelief myself. As it turns out, some of those conversations about prom and dates that Bo and his friends skip over are just as important to Bo's storyline as it is to Bella's, and since Jeremy and Alan are too cool and masculine to address it, Bo ends up having the prom date conversation at school later in the book with a girl character where he feels compelled to tell her that he's breaking man code by discussing his friends with her. I was a little surprised that Bo Swan felt like he had to be a certain type of man or adhere to a rigid man code he's not really tough or aggressive or hypersexual or anything else you'd expect of hypermasculinity but he brings up the man code more than once in the book another example of a gendered imbalance is after bella learns that edward is a vampire she needs to take her mind off the situation and goes into the woods with a copy of jane austen's mansfield park she tries to read it but one of the main characters is named edmund which reminds her of edward and how hopelessly in love with him she is In Life and Death, Bo wanders into the woods of his parallel universe with a copy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. This change in itself is not a problem, and it seems like an okay classic literature substitute. I, I mean, I'm not mad that he's not reading Jane Austen. But here's the paragraph. I flipped through the paperback, waiting for a word or phrase to catch my interest. Usually a giant squid or narwhal would be adequate. But today I went through the book twice without finding anything intriguing enough to start me reading. I snapped the book shut. Fine, whatever. I'd get a sunburn instead. I rolled onto my back and closed my eyes. Um, hello, Bo? Where's the obsessive pining? If Bo is allegedly the same character as Bella, why does he get to have a life outside of this relationship? Every corner of Bella's mind is filled with Edward from the moment she lays eyes on him, but you're telling me even after Bo finds out Edith is a vampire- He gets to have a distracted moment alone because narwhals don't hold his attention today. And side note, while Twilight opens with the Bible verse Genesis 2.17 about the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, Life and Death opens with a quote by Jules Verne from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The quote is, if his destiny be strange, it is also sublime. It is comparatively pretty independent. Like, if both of those... (laughs) Like, the Genesis quote is completely about a woman reliant on a man, and the 20,000 Leagues quote is just about the man fulfilling his destiny. I don't know. Comparatively, kind of not that cool. Even when I give this section some benefit of the doubt, like maybe it was challenging to work in some 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea reference, like the, the way that Edmund from Mansfield Park works, you know? Whatever the case may be. I'm worried that part of what inspired the dulling of the obsession in Beau's case is that it's kind of creepy to read about a boy obsessing over a girl. Like, in the Twilight Universe worldview, of course it's agreeable for Bella to have her mind always on Edward, because if anybody's a threat, it's him. There's no harm in her being the agent of choice when she's the one in danger. Even if Bella and Edward were both human, Edward would win in a fistfight. Like, that's just fact. He's physically larger, he's stronger. Bella getting to choose this life is, is less creepy than the other way around. The dynamic when it's totally flipped with a female vampire and a male human is weird because beau is taller than edith he's bigger he's less fragile looking descriptions of edith unlike edward don't mention how muscular she is they focus on her sharp nails which could be intimidating but not the same way as a jack dude that's bigger than you you know and take this example when bella first starts guessing at what kind of creature edward is she guesses he's a superhero and he cryptically implies that he's dangerous the villain and not the hero that gets locked in right away. She doesn't want to believe it, but yeah, okay, sure. This guy could totally be dangerous. Look at him. The quote is, "You're dangerous." I guessed. My pulse quickening as I intuitively realized the truth of my own words. He was dangerous. He'd been trying to tell me all along. However, when Edith cryptically implies she is dangerous to Beau, he might as well laugh in her face. He says, "You're dangerous." It came out like a question, and there was doubt in my voice. She was smaller than I was, no more than my age, and delicately built. Under normal circumstances, I would have laughed at applying the word dangerous to someone like her. Then he considers the inexplicable fear he's felt while he's around her, because he does feel that. She is a vampire. She gives him all the same looks that Edward gives to Bella, whatever, and thinks maybe, maybe she's dangerous, explaining, "'Under the doubt, outside the incongruity of the word dangerous applied to her slim and perfect body, I could feel the truth of the foundation.' dangerous i murmured again trying to fit the word to the person in front of me her porcelain face was still vulnerable without walls or secrets this line sticks out like a sore thumb porcelain is fragile vampires are not fragile edward is not once described as porcelain but he's sometimes described as stone or marble I'd love to get into the logistics of why Edward has muscles when Edith is a twig, but I'm kind of still piecing together evidence about vampire bodies for an episode a few down the line. So right now we're just talking about how long it took Beau to perceive Edith as dangerous. It isn't until he's walking along the beach and Julie, who is the gender-swapped version of Jacob Black, explains the Cullens as vampires. He recalls his conversation with Edith where she says she's dangerous and thinks, yeah, okay, if she's a vampire, I guess that makes sense. This brings us to the scene where I really felt like Stephanie Meyer had her work cut out for her. When I first imagined life and death, after reading the foreword by Stephanie Meyer, where she explains the changes by percentages that I went over in the last episode, I wondered what happens in the reverse scene in Port Angeles where Bella is walking alone at night. Because when I first got this book, I was like, all right, cool, we've got Bo, what else is going to change? Charlie's the same, and I'm pretty intimately familiar with the Twilight story, so I'm wondering and my brain kept getting stuck on what happens in Port Angeles. In Twilight, Bella's surrounded by scary, creepy men who, worst-case scenario, plan on gang-raping her and leaving her for dead. This is the implied fear of being a woman walking alone at night and the implied fear of this scene, but it's even more clearly cut out in Midnight Sun, where Edward is actually hearing the perverted thoughts of these guys, and everything implied in the scene in Twilight is explicitly, though not graphically, laid out in Midnight Sun. It is just as bad as you're meant to believe it is. These guys are planning to do bad things to Bella, and Edward really swoops in at the last minute. If you were to exactly flip the genders in this scene, Beau would be walking alone in fear of being assaulted by a bunch of women. You and I both know, without even reading the scene, there's no way Stephanie Meyer would go for this. She really tried to take a logistical point of view when deciding what she could get away with in this book, which is most clearly illustrated when she doesn't swap the genders of Bella's parents on the grounds it would be unlikely for a father to get full custody of a kid in a divorce. So like, if she doesn't feel comfortable giving a dad custody, we know that she's not going to try to force some sort of girl gang attack on Beau. Being afraid while walking at night is a distinctly gendered issue. In the U.S., 45% of women say they don't feel comfortable walking at night compared to 27% of men. When it comes to sexual violence, 82% of all juvenile victims are female, and 90% of all adult rape victims are female. Other trends exist in sexual violence demographics, including an increased risk statistically for trans people, people in prison, and black and indigenous people. Bella is a... Middle class, cisgendered white girl in Washington state, and Bo is a cisgendered white boy, so a lot of these statistics don't play in here, but the issue is definitely gendered. Even in Bo's eyes, it's hard to believe a woman is dangerous unless she's a confirmed supernatural murderer, so what's gonna happen? No, Bo does not get jumped by a girl gang. He has a run in with a group of people doing drugs, four men and two women, and they mistake him for a cop. Because one of them has seen Bo riding around in Charlie's police cruiser with him because, reminder, Charlie is the police chief of the town. So, Bo is at risk of being hate-crimed for being mistaken as a police officer. The only way Bo could be in danger walking at night is if the group saw him as a threat and decided to take him out before he used his power to get them in trouble. And to be clear, like, if Bo was murdered or even just beat up for being mistaken as a cop, Charlie would have found out who did it and locked those people up forever. And honestly, if something happened to Bella, Charlie also would have used the force of the law to take action, but, like, I don't personally believe the whole group would be convicted, but I guess it's possible. So, either way, I don't know, like... Bo is definitely in a protected class as a male, but both Bo and Bella are in a protected class as white Americans slash children of police officers. Hypotheticals aside of what could have happened in these scenes, it is generally accepted in this universe, and frankly also often in the real world, that men are dangerous and women are not. This kind of simplification of gender is bad for men and boys, too. All the statistics I listed do have a percentage of victims who are men, and they should be able to get just as much support and safety without being looked down on for being weak or womanly. I think this entire section speaks pretty strongly to part of what's compelling about Twilight as a female protagonist is that this is a girl in danger, and all of us want to save her or want her to be okay, and it just really doesn't work the other way around. Like, I personally feel pretty passionately protective of Bella, in part because we're demographically similar, and I feel kind of even more protective of and similar to Kristen Stewart as an actor. I know I'm not alone in identifying with Bella. After all, she's the first-person narrator of the books. People also love Kristen Stewart, and she's been solidifying a career since Twilight, gaining relevance especially with that recent Christmas movie, Happiest Season, People do not, however, love Kristen Stewart as Bella Swan. A lot of reviewers of the movies found her awkward and boring. People were quick to call out the selfish and problematic way she gets sucked into a codependent relationship, uses Jacob, abandons her family, is a bad friend. Like, the character, something that's great about the first-person point of view is that you're all the way inside the character's head, but seeing it projected up on the screen as Kristen Stewart you have to actually imagine taking a walk in their shoes instead of the point of view where you are taking the walk in the shoes. So that's that's one of the hardest parts of a movie adaptation to begin with. Even voiceover can't totally immerse the audience in first person because at the end of the day, it's not you on screen. It's a teenager making choices, and you can say, of course you wouldn't make those same choices if you were in her position. The book is just as intense as the movies, but we get mad seeing Kristen Stewart as a separate person, looking worried in her portrayal of Bella, even though Bella's also primarily worried and angry in the book. I, <laughs> That's one of the biggest memes I think that came out of the Twilight Saga was Kristen Stewart is always making faces that are grim or just <laughs> not making as many faces as maybe people think she should. But Kristen Stewart does smile. She's proven it countless times since the Twilight Saga ended. Her opening monologue for Saturday Night Live in 2017 is hilarious. She talks about Twilight, dating Robert Pattinson, and reads off some of Donald Trump's tweets because apparently he was abnormally invested in hers and Robert Pattinson's breakup when it happened. By the time she's doing that monologue, she has cropped and bleached her hair with a fully realized, like, high-fashion goth aesthetic, and she's wearing all black. She's got this black mesh skirt and mesh socks with black high heels. The joke in the second half of the monologue is that the cast members feel the need to impress her by smoking cigarettes and riding motorcycles because she's so cool. After all, she did drive fast and smoke in a music video for the Rolling Stones. So, she get, she, Kristen Stewart found how her talents played into a certain type of character. The thing that I think is sort of funny is that her performances in other movies that aren't really that different from Twilight. She's not overly effusive or preppy, and I kind of feel like Part of the critique of Bella Swan's performance is that teenage girls are, air quotes, supposed to be bubbly and fun, but this is a teenage girl who's brooding and obsessive, but so are some real-life teenage girls. And not all teenage girls with an attitude problem realize they look good and all black right away, so they're trying to blend in, and they're also acting like a goth kid. That's, that's Bella Swan in a nutshell. I think she did it brilliantly, but that might... I might be in a minority there reading these sidebook, rewrites whatever drew my attention to a critical oversight on behalf of both stephanie meyer and the audience regarding bella's upbringing most of the people who are critical of bella swan's attitude and decisions fail to realize that bella is actually behaving exactly how you'd expect someone to behave if they're parentified as a child parentification is when a child is asked to take the role of an adult from an early age You probably know somebody who's been parentified or know a child that exhibits some of these traits or possibly you were parentified as a child, but we don't have to talk about that because we've been given the gift of Bella Swan to examine and live through vicariously to learn about parentification without too much self-examination. So... Thanks, Stephanie Meyer, always giving us food for thought. Some signs of parentification, according to Psychology Today, are that a person grew up feeling like they had to be responsible. They have trouble playing or letting loose. They like to feel like they're in control. They're pulled into arguments between caregivers, felt like they were given responsibilities that were age-inappropriate. They're often complimented for being so responsible or so good. They're more likely to be self-reliant than to trust others. They don't really remember being a kid, and or the parents had trouble caring for themselves, so they place the responsibility on the child. All of which leads to the person who's been parentified becoming a caregiver to others. That's what they're used to, and that's what makes them feel good. Even when it requires self-sacrifice, they feel like they have to be the peacemaker, and they simultaneously feel like their efforts aren't being appreciated. This is common enough. It is so critical to why Bella is so intense, She gets super weird about doing fun things with her friends and usually uses I'm clumsy as an excuse not to do anything. She doesn't want to go to the beach because she could fall. She doesn't want to go to school dance because she could fall. She doesn't play sports because she could fall. You get the point. But if the issue was really some unavoidable curse of clumsiness, why isn't Bella in the chess club or something? What does she do for fun? Read Jane Austen? Bella's parents are divorced and live in totally different states. Supposedly, her parents divorced when she was super young, like, under one-year-old young. But toward the end of Twilight, Bella needs an excuse to run away from home and tells Charlie some string of heart-wrenching comments that she claims her mom also said to him when she left. It comes in a moment where Bella is being tracked by a scary vampire from outside the coven, and she needs to cover her bases so Charlie doesn't think Edward kidnapped her or something. I don't really know why that was even on the table. Why are you dating someone that your dad might think might kidnap you? But... The scene goes down like this. I could only think of one way to escape, and it involved hurting him so much that I hated myself for even considering it. But I had no time, and I had to keep him safe. So I glared up at my father, fresh tears in my eyes for what I was about to do. I do like him. That's the problem. I can't do this anymore. I can't put down any more roots here. I don't want to end up trapped in this stupid, boring town like Mom. I'm not going to make the same dumb mistake she did. I hate it. I can't stay here another minute. I think we're supposed to take Bella's side because she's so scared of the rogue vampire and she's saying all this stuff to keep Charlie separate from her and therefore safer than if he was like with her or she was in his house. So, a few paragraphs down we get, I wasn't being nice, I confessed, ignoring his attempt at a diversion, looking down at my knees. That was the same thing my mom said when she left him. You could say I was hitting below the belt. My gut instinct is that Bella just proved some really alarming manipulation skills, but setting that aside, why did she know all of that well enough to injure Charlie with those words? If her parents split when she was an infant... It would take a complete lack of boundaries on her mother's part to share enough about the divorce for Bella to be able to quote a fight that she was barely alive for. She does way more than any child should have to for her family, even though plenty of kids do end up in a similar position. She's wired to be a caregiver. She's an only child responsible for being a go-between for her strange parents. Sometimes throughout Twilight, we see Bella preparing meals for her dad, Charlie, and cracking jokes about how he can't take care of himself without her. These are tiny moments that, honestly, I didn't pay much attention to when I went through the original series. It feels like pretty average case of distant daughter moving in with her single dad who loves fishing and being a cop. I ran it past someone who has recently rewatched all the movies, and they agreed with me. Bella isn't obviously a caregiver or, like, inappropriately filling a parental role in those, in those movies, in that first movie. The person who actually pointed out to me that Bella might be taking on too much is my guy, Edward Cullen. Edward, in all his obsessive secret watching of Bella, gives us a lot more insight to who she is when he tells the story in Midnight Sun. It's more information than we ever really get from Bella's perspective in Twilight. In both books, Edward asks Bella about her relationship with her mom because he knows that she loves and misses her mother, and he's, I guess, trying to get to know her. In Twilight, the scene is brushed over, but now that Stephanie Meyer has had 15 years to think about how to elaborate on it. She gives us an in-depth answer from Bella in Midnight Sun. She talks about trying hard to make her mom happy throughout her life and says Charlie needs her. Edward's response is this. I nodded thoughtfully, sifting through this mine of information. I wish I could meet this woman who had shaped so much of Bella's character. Part of me would have preferred that Bella had an easier, more traditional childhood that she could have gotten to be the child. But she wouldn't have been the same person, and truly, she didn't seem resentful in any way. She liked to be the caretaker, liked to be needed. So Edward just defined the parentification of the child and described Bella as a caretaker. I guess Stephanie Meyer read some of the same blog posts that I read in the meantime and was able to diagnose this or something. I didn't really get that from the Twilight series, but that's part of what the alternate books are for, is, like, these little revisions of clarities. The thing that blows my socks off is the next line. She likes to be the caretaker, liked to be needed. Perhaps this was the real secret as to why she was drawn to me. Had anyone ever needed her more? Edward. (sighs) There's so much to unpack here. For one, it comes up pretty regularly that Edward has no idea why he likes Bella or why she likes him, except that they need each other. They have this inexplicable star-crossed lover's fate thing. They need each other, but they have to ignore all other logistics and preferences and dreams because the only thing that matters is that they need each other. They are codependent at first sight. It is a truly frightening foundation for a relationship. Worse, Edward seems to know that Bella likes to be a caretaker and that it stems from this bizarre caretaking relationship she developed with her mother throughout her life. And she's still in a parental caretaking relationship with her dad. She hasn't left the house, she hasn't found herself. He clearly states that he knows her mother daughter relationship was difficult and formative. He knows that she will always put other people first, something she might not even know about herself. Then, In the very next paragraph, he volunteers to be the person she overexerts herself for. I cannot overstate the toxicity of this passage. This man has 70 years as a vampire to observe human behavior in relationships. He takes that 70 years of experience, identifies a caregiving pattern in Bella, and then exploits it. I don't care. How many times he claims he's trying to avoid selfishness or protect her when the very basis of their connection is that he can take life from her? And have no fear. There are plenty more examples of Edward doing and saying two different things coming up. Like, I've, it's just constant. He's always saying he doesn't want to be selfish, and then he does the most selfish thing in the world. You can say you don't want to be selfish and still be selfish. Probably, actually, if you have to keep saying it, you know what they say. Again, I think this whole explanation about Bella's responsibilities is mostly a clarity revision on behalf of the author. I don't have any groundbreaking feminist conspiracies about Stephanie Meyer's failure to include it in the original version of Twilight. I think that people being able to google mental health symptoms has done wonders for authors to be able to kind of state more of this outright, and she was writing that book just more with lived experience, and it's just a product of its time. I don't think that it's necessarily that... There was any sort of intentional hiding of these traits. In Twilight, there's a little bit from Bella about how much she trusts Phil, which is her mother's new husband, to take good care of her and make sure food was in the fridge and all that. The whole dynamic is explained even more when life and Death is written because Bo is described much more in depth as a caretaker, and that book was written in 2015. Right off the bat, when Bo is leaving Phoenix and his mom at the beginning of the book, he says, I'd been taking care of my mom for my whole life. I mean, there must have been a time, probably when I was still in diapers, that I wasn't in charge of the bills and paperwork and cooking and general level-headedness. But I couldn't remember it. Was leaving my mom to fend for herself really the right thing to do? Then, when he first meets up with Charlie, Charlie asks if Beau feels okay leaving his mom. He says, We both understood that this question wasn't about my own personal happiness. It was about whether I was shirking my responsibility to look after her. This was the reason charlie never fought mom about custody. He knew she needed me. I don't mean to assert that Bella Swan's or Beau Swan's parents don't love their child. It just strikes me as kind of a bummer that Bella or Beau is kind of a commodity that can just be passed between parents as needed, rather than a loved one and a child. When you put it all together, there's more than enough evidence here to suggest the parentification of Bella Swan. The consequences of that parentification are not directly addressed in the Twilight Saga, nor do I expect them to be, but they're written between the lines of a lot of her decisions, a lot of Bella's decisions. Parentification is a form of neglect, and kids who experience it are more likely to have mental health issues because of it. They have relational trauma and chronic stress. The more dysfunction, the worse it can be for somebody. Some long-term effects that stick out to me are difficulty functioning independently and involvement in unhealthy relationships. Bella wants to commit to an eternity with Edward because she gets all of her self-worth from how much of herself she can give to others. She wants to give her entire life to Edward, literally her life. She ultimately would have been a lot better off doing some cognitive behavioral therapy, maybe going to like a horse rehab, but instead she opted into becoming a vampire. Stuff Like the parentification of Bella Swan is why I say Stephanie Meyer ruined my life. She wrote a character who's set up to have mental health issues that need addressing and probably for a human person would be addressed later down the line. Like as a high schooler still under your parents' roof, you're not going to address all this stuff. But Bella didn't get to become an adult. The reader is drawn into an infatuation with Edward and then allowed to believe that the progression of the relationship is desirable or romantic, but neither Bella or Edward are given a chance for self-improvement and the goal is to end up together no matter the cost. I don't think that's a great goal. I don't know if Stephanie Meyer owes anybody characters who are interested in self-improvement, but it bums me out when I consider the vast influence of this series and the reach of the Twilight Saga It got to so many people, including me, who might have imagined Bella and Edward as relational role models, and they're not. (laughs) The working theory here is that Bella's love interest, Edward, leans into opportunities to be comforted by her. Real quick, because it's just rich with examples. Let's go back to that scene in Port Angeles. After Bella is nearly attacked by that group of scary parking lot dudes, she gets in Edward's car and they drive off. Bella asks Edward if he's okay because his expression is murderously angry and he says no he's not okay he returns the question and asks Bella if she's okay after all she's the one who was nearly attacked and she says she's all right then Edward exhales sharply and orders Bella to distract him that's the word Twilight uses orders he says just prattle about something unimportant until I calm down The definition of prattle, because that's not a word people often use, is to talk at length in a foolish or inconsequential way. It suggests the chatter of children, according to the internet. This boy just told Bella, no, order Bella to prattle on about something unimportant. That's rude. He actually gets her job to help him manage his rage, but his rage is coming in a situation where she's the person who was the actual victim and whose emotion should come first. He isn't a source of comfort, and even though he just saved her life technically, like the way that he did from the car that almost crushes her at the beginning of the movie, he's repeatedly saving her life because he wants to be the one to take her life. He's saving it so he can take it later. He's selfish. He's objectifying Bella. That's cool that he's strong and everything, but it's just like not worth it long term. If you fast forward a couple movies and see the way that he treats Bella when she's pregnant... He just wants to be the one to take her life, and he's mad that it might be somebody else. So, in a serious contradiction, in that other book where Edith is the vampire, Edith takes care of her own emotions when she drives her Volvo up to rescue Bo from all these people calling him pig, trying to hate crime him for being a cop. I kind of saw this coming because Edith apologizes more in the first 200 pages than Edward does in the whole damn series, so I expected that she would get some sort of different emotional treatment than Edward, despite the fact that the character's lived experiences mean that Beau would be the caretaker. Technically, right? Beau's the caretaker, he does the bills and all that, and technically, Edith is the rage monster, but... When Beau gets into Edith's car, he grabs her arm and doesn't stop until Edith tells him to put on his seatbelt. Edward and Bella have the same conversation, but Edward commands that she wears a seatbelt and she obeys. Those are the words. Those are the words they use. Very Fifty Shades. Beau says Edith looks pissed. He asks if she's all right and she says no. That's the same as Twilight. She asks him if he's hurt and he says no. Doesn't ask if if he's okay. Bo never says he's okay in that dissociative lying kind of way that Bella does, but Edith calls him stupid, which is something she does throughout. She's always saying, like, you're an idiot, and Edward never does that to Bella. It's honestly mean and kind of, I guess, just the equivalent of being commanding is putting down his intellect. The frustrating difference between Edith and Edward here is that even after Edith admits she has a temper, the same way Edward does to Bella, she also regulates her own emotions and doesn't, make Bo do it? She tells Bo that she needs a moment to herself and asks Bo if she's allowed to go teach those thugs a lesson. And without much more deliberation, she realizes that Bo's friends are probably worried about him. She's taking care of his emotions. She's taking care of his emotions. This is so disappointing to me. For one, I really thought I was on to something with that whole parentification of the child business when it turns out that Stephanie Meyer would write any girl character to be a caregiver, regardless of their relevant childhood experiences. It's really not the woman's job to take care of all of the emotions in a heterosexual relationship. It's really not a bad thing or against the bro code for a man to express himself in a way other than rage. And in a healthy relationship, both people are able to take care of their own feelings and also provide support when their partner's feeling down. But it's no one's job to parent the other person in the relationship. And anytime you hear of a man looking for a partner with the same traits as his mom because he wants a parent, that's taught. That's not given. That's not biology. That's, that's, Stephanie Meyer said she made these changes because Bo is a boy, but that's not why she made them. She made some of these changes because she didn't want to emasculate him, and they're things that don't have to be emasculating. It's not an insult to your character as a man to have feelings. I know this is really basic gender studies 101 stuff, or even just like queer meme page 101, but this book went into the hands of how many people? I don't know. I'm just disappointed. I would like to close out this Port Angeles chapter. With a little conversation about holding open doors. Holding a door open for someone is a courtesy that leads to a whole lot of strange gender moments in the real world. I can't tell you the number of times a man has refused an open door from me just because I'm a girl and he thinks it's his job to hold the door, but I'm just holding the door because I was going through it and I'm trying to be friendly. I also had a good laugh once when I saw a guy hold a door open for a stranger who happened to be a woman and then let the door slam on some other guy's face. Why can't we just admit that holding the door open for someone is a blanket, cross-gender, nice thing to do that has nothing to do with how macho you're trying to look? If someone's carrying a box, hold the door open for them, period. So, in this Port Angeles trip, Edward takes Bella to dinner after he rescues her. It is super straightforward because it already fits perfectly into the typical gendered hetero outing where the boy takes the girl to dinner, holds open the door, and pays for the meal and all that. So what do Bo and Edith do? Well, Edith asks Bo's friends if it'll ruin their night if Bo takes her to dinner. She drives, but he's the one awkwardly running to open doors to the car in the restaurant. And it is not hot. Part of the appeal of Edward opening the door for you is that he can gracefully move super fast. But Bo is still obligated to keep up this gendered norm, even though he's the lanky clown And Edith is the graceful one. And I think that's kind of messed up. I think Edith should have opened the door simply because she's better at it. At the end of the meal, Edith pays because she has all that vampire money from being alive for 100 years, which Bo naturally protests. And Edith calmly tells him, try not to get caught up in antiquated gender roles and walks away, leaving a $100 bill on the table for the waiter. And then Bo still has the audacity to try to hold the door open because he's clearly in over his head this is all part of the horrible and wonderful world of twilight stephanie meyer really tried to say that beau doesn't have as much of a chip on his shoulder like it was a coincidence when clearly that chip was handed over to edith it's obvious why beau doesn't have the same paper about Macbeth that bella has when bella's chosen topic is whether shakespeare's treatment of female characters is misogynistic Stephanie Meyer knows what feminism is, yet she's got this fantasy novel series where she doesn't try to imagine what the world would look like with gender equality. I just don't get it. She writes such normative characters, but doesn't call out the parts that are unhealthy. There's so much abuse and no recovery. And when Bella hit the big screen as Kristen Stewart, people were mean about it. There are blogs listing all of Bella Swan's flaws, and I gotta admit, a lot of them are signs she's being emotionally abused. It kind of makes me sick that Edward isn't totally viewed as a villain or at least a guy with a lot of room for self-improvement. So, I guess tune back in next week to learn more about why Edward Cullen's inability to love himself makes it impossible for him to love anybody else. Can I get an amen? This podcast that you're listening to now was written, recorded, and edited. Susie Shelton. The theme music is by Alexis Lopez. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, share with your friends, and consider tuning into the sister podcast Nurmer Nurmer or following Nurmer Nurmer on Instagram. You can DM any feedback or questions to that account and I'll get back to you. All sources used for this episode are in the description. If you or somebody you know has experienced sexual assault, please know that you are not alone. The number for the National Sexual Assault Hotline is one 800 656 four six seven three it is confidential and available 24 hours a day the national suicide prevention lifeline phone number is 800-273-8255 special thanks to you for listening to this podcast and extra special thanks to stephanie meyer for ruining my life